Hey all, it's Evan Hill here of Real Hawk Talk. Super excited to talk to you about our good friends over at Burgermaster. If you know anything about me, I crave burgers in my sleep. I do not mess around. Started in 1952, Burgermaster is the best burger chain in Washington State. They have locations all over the Puget Sound in Aurora, Bellevue, Everett, Mill Creek University, and Mount Vernon. Their fresh ingredients and classic driving experience make them the greatest burger chain in the state of Washington. Stop by Burgermaster on your way home from a Seahawks game. You won't regret it. Hey everybody, it's Brian. If you haven't noticed, it is absolutely nuts out there in the housing market. If you don't know exactly what you're doing and you don't have someone that you trust by your side to guide you through the process, good luck getting the home you want or getting the best price for the home you're selling. John Hurlbut at Altitude Homes is a guy I've known for years, over a decade, a friend and someone I trust implicitly. If you are in Pierce, South King, or Thurston counties, there is nobody better to help guide you through the real estate process right now. Go on over to altitudehomesteam.com slash hawkablogger. Now, again, that's altitudehomesteam.com slash hawkblogger. Sign up to contact John. He will help you with the process, and all referrals will result in a $1,000 donation from John and the Altitude Homes team to Ben's Fund. Everybody wins. Go in there, get your help, get your dream home, get the most money for your home. AltitudeHomesTeam.com slash HawkBlogger. Hey all, Evan Hill here of Real Hawk Talk. Super excited to talk to you guys about our good friend Blake Johnson of ManifestFit.com. Football season is quickly approaching, and it is a struggle to stay in shape while eating burgers and nachos. ManifestFit.com is your one only true online personal training service with workout and nutrition programs specifically based on your needs. They work with clients all over the U.S., and what makes Blake and ManifestFit.com so unique is that they don't believe training should be a luxury item. Now's the time to start. Head over to ManifestFit.com. Click on how to join and fill out the form. Their team will get back to you ASAP and help you start building a healthier, happier, louder Seahawks family. The skyline is etched in my veins. You can never put that out no matter how hard it rains in my city. Give it a second. There's a delay with YouTube, but... I'm staring very intently at my computer, right? Hey, I see me talking. Okay, awesome. So apologize to everyone. I know there was miscommunication with yesterday. Uh, I wasn't feeling well, so we bumped it to today. And then that created a mix up with our streaming technology, I guess. Uh, and it was trying to stream to an event that didn't exist anymore. So I think we're live. I'm super excited to uh, welcome uh, Griffin on the, the show here with us today, along with Jeff, one of our regulars or co-hosts. Um, we're going to be talking about the defensive prospects in this draft. Um, but first, um, I want to just uh, let Griff introduce himself. Um, I'm really excited to have him here. He's, he's got a ton of knowledge on uh, both this draft and CX defense and CX generally. So yeah, Griff, uh, why don't you tell everyone uh, kind of who you are? Hey guys, first, uh, thanks for having me on. I've been a uh, longtime uh, listener, audience member of Real Hawk Talk, so it's excited to be on uh, this side of it. Um, yeah, I, I um, like many people on the internet, I have a lot of things to say. Um, uh, I've done uh, some light blogging. Um, I have a podcast right now called Seattle Overload with Ty Dan Gonzalez and Maddie, uh, Maddie Brown. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, excited uh, to be here um thanks for having me so yeah the seahawks are in a very interesting unique situation this year they've got a lot of draft capital this year and next so 
a lot of options to discuss. Um, so I'm excited to get into that with you guys. So yeah, so um, before I, I realized that we weren't even live, uh, Griff gave this awesome long answer about all the changes in the Seahawks defense, um, how that's been evolving since the Legion of Boom era. You know, it's it's changed quite a bit, even last year under Ken Norton, and now obviously they've promoted uh, Clint Hurt, they brought in Sean Desai and some other coaches. And so I think before we get into specific prospects, it might be good to talk about you know, what this defense, you know, has been, what it's turning into, what you expect it to kind of continue, how it'll continue to change and how some of these guys might be used. So um, do you want to just give us some background on uh, that evolution of Seattle's defense? Sure. Um, I, obviously, we all know Seattle is uh, renowned for their, um, you know, uh, four, three fronts and playing cover three behind it. Um, they have switched it up a little bit, like during the Chris Richard years, they actually put a lot of man coverage then, but still predominantly a cover three team. Um, but uh, starting in 2020 was really when we started to see more, I guess you could call it seismic shifts. They, they were still, again, predominantly cover three team. Um, early on to start that season, they actually embraced quite a, quite a bit of blitzing. Um, they realized it wasn't working the way they wanted it to at least collectively. Um, they were generating sacks, but the overall defense was too boom, too boom or bust. But the main thing, how you might characterize 2020 was that they started embracing bare fronts, which is a type of three, four front, um, two stand-up outside linebackers, two or three um, defensive tackles um, in between the offensive tackles. Um, and that was to help defend a lot of what we see in the NFC West offensively and really around the league right now. Um, you know, under center, wide zone, outside zone. Not that that is new, but we cycle, we kind of cycle back to it. And a lot of the uh, play action concepts that um, that are ran off of that. Now we probably have seen, have have never seen more play action, especially from under center in the last, you know, 10 years uh, than any time before that. So that's certainly like a league meta, you could say right now. So Seattle um, transitioned to playing more um, bare fronts to allow their linebackers in and second level to help defend um, play action concepts and allow the defensive line to shoulder more of the load against the run. So it was kind of about redistributing resources. Um, and that worked for them isolated to that portion of it anyway, defending play action quite well. Um, for whatever reason, that didn't translate note for note into 2021. Um, part of that might be a combination of KJ Wright leaving, Bobby Wagner, I think, regressing athletically. Um, They're trying to take some pressure off of those guys. Um, Jordan Brooks started getting more snaps um, um, into a full-time full player. So we started to see a huge transition toward more too high, um, you know, more cover two quarters, cover six. Um, and um, if we, so the way I perceive, and that was to help defend the intermediate level, not just some play action, but like pure dropbacks as well. Um, but they still kept the bare front. They kept some even more pure three, four fronts um, to accommodate the second level. Um, then of course they, they let go uh, Ken Norton Jr. and Andre Curtis. And then based off the guys that they brought in, um, I kind of see those moves bringing in, um, well, promoting Clint Hurt and then bringing in, Clint Hurt, who has a uh, uh, background with uh, Vic Fangio, so now he's worked under Vic Fangio and Pete Carroll. It's quite the, you know, quite the career uh, so far. Um, and then uh, they brought in Sean Desai, another Vic Fangio um, uh, assistant, and then Carl Scott, who 
has in the NFL has worked under Mike Zimmer and then prior to that, Nick Saban, who are certainly well-versed in two eye coverages. Um, so the, the way how I perceive these moves is not necessarily a rejection of what Seattle did in, in 2021, but actually in a way doubling down on it, but wanting guys that are versed that have those backgrounds to coach it, to help guide it. Um, so the, the, the quickest way I, I know how to characterize the, what the coming, what the changes are from 2021 to 2022 is that Seattle was already using uh, playing two high coverage is the same amount that they, that most of the Fangio teams are. So last year, Denver, Chicago, um, Green Bay, uh, Chargers, Rams. Um, it's within that two high percentage. Uh, so it's like 50, 50, roughly two high to one high within that two high uh, percentage. Seattle tends to play, played a lot more cover two last year than any of those teams did. Um, kind of the hallmark coverage of that group is cover six, but they do it a certain way where they play. Um, well, cover six is cover two to one side, cover four to the other. But historically, the more popular version of cover six is playing quarters to the passing strength. So say if it's uh, trips, so to the three receiver side, you play cover six to that side, then cover two backside. Well, that Fangio group, they like to flip it. They like to play cover two to the passing strength and then quarters backside. Um, so that Seattle already played quite a bit of that. So now I still think we'll see more of cover six possibly, but I think the biggest difference will be eating in to that cover two percentage with more quarters and more cover six. And then on the flip side, and when they go into one high, um, we're simply going to be seeing uh, less cover three and more cover one. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, when Clint Hurt talked about getting more aggressive and stuff, that's, all those Fangio guys, I think in a perfect world, they would just play their base zone defense, which is still a match zone defense. And that's what Seattle was doing. But at a certain point, it doesn't matter how talented you are. If you're just throwing out the same play call snap after snap, um, offenses are going to figure, figure you out. And it's also hard to generate pointedly negative plays in those coverages. So it's, it's one thing to, it's one thing to uh, see an absence of positive plays for an offense. But you also need to get them behind the sticks too, right? You got to get sacks. You want to get turnovers. So that's when they start to um, introduce or intersperse in more man coverage that allows them to accentuate their pass rushers, that allows them to widen their edges out. Um, and uh, also you'll, you'll we'll see more. Um, and Seattle was starting to do this toward the end of the year. And it, it's worth questioning why they weren't doing more of it to start. Uh, but we'll start to see more like zone pressures, more blitzing on earlier downs, but nothing too crazy. Um, those Fangio guys, they they rush more than four, so five or more, anywhere between like 20 and 30%. And that's where Seattle's lived under Ken Norton Jr. Um, in 2020, we saw a huge, a huge jump from the previous year under Ken Norton Jr. It was pushing like 40% before they ended up settling around 30%, realized they needed to be a coverage team, not a blitz team that's the, um, the blitz boy year right right that's the blitz yeah. boy year and the design of the blitzes were not bad they were getting sacks they were getting quarterback hits it's just the coverage couldn't handle it and that's kind of a philosophical question because you can blitz to protect your corners and then also you can blitz um to take advantage of your corners so it's a very delicate line to to straddle um in seattle's case it was hurting their corners um and they, they reeled it back a little bit. But then in 2021, um, they kind of went all the way in the other direction. And they were like, they were sending more than four rushers 20% of the time. 
So I was going from swinging from one end of the pendulum under Ken Norton Jr.'s tenure to the other. Um, then they started to climb again, back pushing back toward 30, like the mid 20s, late 20s, and I think, or high 20s. And I think that's where they want to be because that's where you're generating negative plays. That's where you're, you're causing the, the offense to make a quicker decision, um, helping them defend uh, the check down more. Because um, I would characterize that problem right there to be Seattle's number one problem. They actually did not give up very many completions on pass attempts of over 10 yards. It was everything underneath that. Um, and I think the, 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 the source issue for that is rooted in not having a, um, a good enough pass rush. Um, and it's, this is where it gets really convoluted. If, if you, the, there's a lot of charting companies out there and you can isolate situations. Seattle's pressure percentage on, I think, early downs when they were playing in an even front. So four down, let Benson Mayo, Daryl Taylor, Carlos Dunlap align as wide as possible. They had a pretty respectable pressure rate. It was like hovering between 10 and 15%. So you might think, well, if they have a pass rush problem, why not play those fronts more? Well, if you go into those fronts, then you have to take yourself out of the coverages um, that you're also having success with, like the cover six stuff, right? And then if, so then if you do that, you're asking yourself, what's more important to you, sound coverage or a better pass rush? Theoretically, better pass rush could help the coverage. So, right, so it's, it's a conundrum. I think the, the principle was that it was either take one step forward with the pass rush, two steps back in the coverage, or take two steps forward with the coverage and one step back with the pass rush. So what that question come down, comes down to is how much pass rush can you get relative to the fronts that you're in? And it's hard to get a four-man rush um, in three, four spaced fronts. That's You can only get an above average one or even elite one if you've got Alden Smith and Justin Smith or Khalil Mack and Keem Hicks or Von Miller or Aaron Donald, right? So in order to, so one, Seattle simply needs to get better, um, simply needs to get better pass rushers when they are in bear. But then also we're going to see them spend more time in man coverage that allows them to play more even wide fronts that allows them to stay sound for the run because they're gapped out. So they can just accentuate their base stuff, which they're, I think they have a good grasp on. Um, there was a lot of good tape. It's just, you know, Jordan Brooks, Ugo Amadi, Bobby Wagner at the second level and nickel are having to defend routes 20, 25 yards downfield by it before the ball gets out. Then you're having to rally up on the check down. The ball gets caught at two yards. They're running for eight more. If you have a pass rush speeding up the quarterback, you can make that tackle at four to five yards on average. And if you've got, and the pass rush is theoretically getting sacks, putting the quarterback, um, the offense behind behind the stick. So Seattle just has this systemic problem that, yeah, they can tweak with scheme, um, but they also just need to get the players. And I think that um, however better Clint Hurt might be than his predecessors, he'll be doomed if they don't get that, um, that another impact pass rusher. So I think ultimately that's, that's what it comes down to. Um, I, I do think that they've arrived on where they want to be and it's pretty clear the direction they're headed. I think they would have been headed this direction had they not moved on from Ken Norton Jr. But it's cool to be able to kind of confirm that they are headed that direction just by virtue of who they hired and given their backgrounds. That's kind of the midpoint of what they did last year and what those guys have done. So we kind of know what they're going to do. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an exciting, um, I, I, I have, I think there's room for optimism. Um, so one of the things, or 
Jeff, did you have something you want to jump in there? No, it was just there. There was a lot in there, and it's, I'm just very curious. Where I know we're going to talk about this. Is yeah. the, the interesting thing for me is now how do they evaluate players, especially in the draft coming up, differently? I'm sure Nathan will go through position by position. Like we're probably going to look at corner and seeing that like they didn't yeah. bring back DJ Reed. Do you think that's a scheme thing? Is it a value thing? Or are they looking at corners differently? How are they going to play them under Desai? So someone like DJ Reed, do you think he'd be less valued in how they're playing now? Or are they looking for more traditional man corners? That That's a really interesting question. I was, I like many people, I really wanted them to bring back DJ Reed. I just thought he's he was so steady for you. And if you try to isolate what they did well last year, as a means to like project forward, he was such a huge part of that. Um, so why would you not be willing to, you know, pay what the Jets said? Like I, I was actually, my prediction was like Jets offered him what I thought Seattle would pay him. Um, they are, so they are going to play more man coverage and I hope people don't think I'm just saying this after the fact that he's gone. Um, DJ Reed to me really isn't that traitsy, even though he's like a shorter guy. I really don't think he's that quick footed. In fact, I think Trey Brown is more like bursty, more athletic than him. And I think he has more potential than DJ. But what is so impressive to me about DJ Reed is that he's an undersized guy who plays like he's Richard Sherman. Mm-hmm. He's just so aggressive, so technical. And those those are enough to add up for. And I'm not saying he's not quick footed. He's just not for a guy that, you know, you think about a 5'10 guy. Oh, he must be really quick footed. Right. I just don't think he uh, he's like a slam dunk in that arena, but still um, if they are going to play man coverage, I do think if where he was weakest as a player was probably like defending, you know, like crossing routes where he has to find himself all the way across the field. He could lose the, lose a step on guys, but you know, most of the routes you're defending are still down the sideline. He can still defend slants well enough. So I don't know, maybe, um, uh, I mean, Sean Desai spent a lot of time with Artie Burns. Artie Burns is certainly talented. He has certainly had stretches where he's played well. He's also had stretches where he's played poorly. Sidney Jones, perhaps the thing holding him back the most is injuries um, and coming into teams where there have been like incumbents ahead of him and he has to climb his way up. Like this is what happened with Seattle. But if you talk to Philly, um, yeah, Eagles fans and Jags fans, they've all said that Sidney Jones showed enough to where they wanted to see more. And I think Seattle fans probably feel that way because he had a good chunk of play last year once he got going. Um, It's just risky to bet on those things as a sure thing. I mean, there's a reality. There's a scenario where Seattle's just fine at right corner. But you, it's it would be probably not prudent to roster as though that's a certainty. DJ Reed, I mean, for as much as I just kind of, you know, pointed out the negatives, I still, without a shadow of doubt, would, would have paid him what the Jets did if it were up to me. Um, but I don't know if it comes down to, if it could, comes down to schematic questions, you know, arm length and stuff. I mean, I think they're going to start Trey Brown. The guys that they're connected to in the draft don't have long arms, for example. So they might be just thinking if you can play the technique, you can play the technique. Um, Carl Scott has rich history coaching all sorts of different kinds of uh, corner technique, safety technique too. So I think that might've just come down to straight up uh, just eval, not necessarily style per, per chance. Um, yeah. Still a bummer that he's not a Seahawk anymore, but um, yeah. yeah. So, you know, the Seahawks were 
pretty easy to predict in terms of cornerback for a long time, right? You mentioned arm length. They had to have like 32 inch arms or whatever it was. And, you know, they yeah. had a, uh, uh, they had a, a type, a very defined type, and it was easy to kind of pick those guys out of the drafts and say who they'd want. Um, they also have never taken someone earlier than, uh, I'm pretty sure Quill was, uh, he was a third round pick and I'm pretty sure he was a comp pick, right? Uh, he yeah. was back into the third. So well into the draft is the earliest they've ever taken one. Uh, there's two guys in this one that are absolutely candidates for nine, assuming either of them even make it to nine, um, Ahmad Gardner and Derek Stingley. Yeah. Um, do you think that, I guess, one, do you think that Seattle would be willing to consider a guy at nine? Do you think that their priorities have changed around that? And would you want to take either of these guys at nine? Yeah, well, like like any, any everyone can empathize, trying to figure out what they'll do is such a different question then you know like even what makes sense for what we think we know them as right they'll still end up doing something different um i think point blank i think derek stingley is the best player in the draft period across all positions offense and defense there are um the the concerns that jump out though of course he only played three games this past year you know he had an injury he tested good maybe even very good but not great and for when you're talking about a guy who's billed as like a once every five year corner prospect. I mean, literally since Ramsey, um, he's not, he's not checking off a bunch of boxes in terms of like precedence, like the easy to identify precedent stuff. It's just, you know, as the saying goes on tape, the guy's a total freak. So, I mean, if he's there at nine, I think all the teams in front of him are making a mistake to let him get to nine, like even dip into, you know, beyond that. But I still understand hesitation. Um, and with Seattle kind of laxing their seemingly their thresholds for where they take guys, I don't think he'd be ruled out. Um, now Ahmad Garner, Sauce Gardner, that guy is like the ultimate Pete Carroll cornerback historically. And he fits every scheme. Like, even though like he's a classic cover one, cover three press corner, long lengthy, he's so sticky in man coverage. He's so long that if he's playing zone, if he's playing a cloud cover two corner, you're not going to throw a corner out over his head. You know, like he's going to, he's, he's, he's tipping that ball. I mean, so he just, he also fits everything. I just think Stingley's feet are like, you can't get better than that. So um, I, if I, I think that uh, th there's a lot of merit to taking that, maybe even over any other guy that's there, irrespective of need, I think edge is a bigger need, but like, you know, these guys are still so good that, you know, no matter how positive you are on the combination of Artie Burns and Sid Jones and Justin Coleman and all that, like, I would still take either of those guys. Um, so I don't know. I'm how curious. do you guys feel about it? Well, I don't want to jump ahead too much here, but uh, you said you take him over any, almost anybody. Would you take him over Thibodeau? Oh, man, that's so tough. So I would go. I mean, I just said I would, right? But like my my id would tell me no, just because I, I I have a bias toward edge rushers in general. I think Seattle has a greater need at edge. And I think Thibodeau or Thibodeau, however you pronounce it, is good enough to to balance need into that equation. And then further, the guy, the corners that will be there at 40 and 41, I think are better than the edges that will be there at 40 and 41. So from like a you know value maximization standpoint. I think I would lean Thibodeau if he's there at nine. Um, I think another corner that could be there at 40, who I think when he's signing his second contract will probably be signing a top-of-market corner deal is Kyrie Elam. I think that guy is 
you know, like he's just, you're pulling down the sliders a little bit from Stingley and uh, Gardner with him. Great technique on the line of scrimmage, quick footed. He ran a four, four. Um, he's sticky. He can cover across the field. I mean, he's going to be a pro bowler, I think. Um, you know, that's a projection. You never know. It's crazy things happen. This guy's going to the league all the time. But as much as you can tell pre-draft, I think Kyrie Elam is a guy that could be there at 40 and I would be willing to risk it if he, to see if he is and take Thibodeau at nine, uh, just cause I know Elam might be there. Um, there are other corners too, that will be good there, but I just, I think the edges that would be there at 40, there will still be good players, but I'm more excited value wise by the edges that will be there at 72 than I am at 40. Um, and I would risk seeing what corner drops to 40 because also, you know, balancing need. Um, like I'm not going to freak out if Sidney Jones is the starter or Artie Burns is a starter opposite Trey. Um, it'd be cool if they drafted one of these guys and let them compete. Um, Cause even if they don't start, remember they're playing cover, they're going to be playing more cover once so you can mix and match corners and nickel and dime all you want. Right. So they're going to get snaps either way. Um, yeah. I think I would go Thibodeau though. Jeff. Uh, back to Stingley and Gardner. Do you have do you have a preference there? Is Stingley your guy as well, or do you like Sauce more? I think I do like Stingley more. I think he, as Griff said, I think he could be the most talented player in this entire draft class. And I think Stingley, to me, just where Seattle is, I want to see them get blue chip talents. And I, again, I'd be very happy with Gardner. I think he's a very clean prospect, maybe the cleanest top ten guy in this draft. But to me, Stingley, just what he did at LSU, and I, I was talking to someone, and I heard actual Daniel Jeremiah say this the other day, where Stingley actually had that Liz Frank injury on his foot in August last year. Mm. He shouldn't have been playing. Yeah. So that's come up a lot in the medicals, and I think – I know you, Griff, has been really high on him this entire process, and we've seen him sort of come up the board and up the board. I think his teams did medicals and he did his pro day, I think when you see him healthy, I think he's just a different level of talent, even than Sauce. Because yeah. I don't, I know Stingley when he was with like Jamar Chase and Jefferson and LSU, he was lining up with those guys. He was the number one probably prospect in the whole country in 2019, and yeah. he was hurt hurt in 2020. Again, he probably shouldn't have been playing in 2021. But to see him this stock drop like this because he only played three games last year, he probably shouldn't have been playing at all, and he's being dinged for that. So for me, I think they're just almost a different level. Again, if they took Sauce Gardner at nine, I'd be pretty thrilled with that. Yeah, I think he's a really good prospect. He fits what they want to do. He's long. He's confident. He brings an attitude that they they really haven't had back there. Uh, DJ Reed brought it, to be, to be fair. But um, I like Stingley. I think Stingley, like I thought, I think Stingley and Thibodeau are the two guys I'd be praying fall to nine. I don't think Thibodeau will. I think, I think the Jets are probably going to take him in the top five. They need an edge rush bad, but so to answer your initial question, for me, it's Stingley. Uh, so I'm going to be totally honest. I'm relying on you guys for all the cornerback talk here because I am being stubborn in my take that Pete will not take a cornerback high. I think he has uh, a lot of things may change, but I think Pete has a lot of faith in his ability to uh, develop a cornerback. Um, and I mean, with pretty good reason. Um so I haven't watched Gardner Stingley. I haven't watched Elam. Uh, I'm, I'm more in the Cam Taylor Britt area. I've watched a lot of bad cornerbacks that <laughs> go in the bottom, the, the bottom of the draft. Um, so, yeah, so I guess, I mean, if you want to talk a little bit more about Elam, I don't really know really anything about him. Um, I've heard a few different people that I trust rave about him, 
but I've also heard him in this, like, you can probably get him at the end of the first, maybe, you know, maybe at 40. So why is he in that range if he has that kind of pro bowl upside? Um, he, yeah, he, he probably is a fringe first. And I just don't think it's out of the realm of possibilities there at 40. He probably isn't. Um, but it's, it's, he's got, he, ha- he has like blocked down technique up front. He, he rarely like loses on, on the, on the line of scrimmage. Um, you can also play the ball and he's a, he's, um, he's big on locating the ball. Like some guys are, have, are so good at playing the position. It's just, they don't actually make a habit of feeling when the ball's coming. Um, he's a guy that does, he has ball production. Um, he, and, um, like his, when he's, when he's playing off coverage, he, he knows when the inbreak is coming. He can squeeze that down pretty well. Again, not as well as, say, Stingley or even Gardner, um, even though he doesn't have to play off like ever. Um, he looks good at off and off coverage as well. But it's just Elam is like, to me, he's just simply, he's traitsy, he has technique. He's just simply the next best guy after those two. Um, uh, another guy that is a little bit more conventionally styled, um, kind of, you know, hits, checks a lot of boxes is Kyler Gordon. Um, now th- there's the other UW corner that a lot of people like McDuffie and McDuffie is probably like, it's going to sound weird. It's probably better at playing the position. It's just that Kyler's working with more with his, you know, and even he's not super lengthy or super tall, but, you know, 5'11", I think 31 inch arms or 30 inch arms. That's simply an advantage over McDuffie. I mean, McDuffie, McDuffie is, um, not to like sink him, but he's so lacking length that you, it's almost like a red flag in terms of when can you draft this guy? Cause he'll, he'll play perfect defense and the ball will just go right over his fingertips and there's nothing more he can do. Um, and you see a, quite a bit of that. I mean, I only watched two or I watched three games of the UW guys. And that's what I'm basing this off of. And it's just like, man, if he could, <laughs> if he could stretch his limbs an inch on each side, this guy would probably go on the bottom of the first um but i've seen seen people having seattle pick him though at at nine or you know trading back a little bit and picking him there that's interesting so maybe i don't have a feel for where his draft stock actually is i would rather bet on kyler gordon because i also think he has cover skills and his length just isn't outside isn't below the threshold of where you feel comfortable i think historically like precedence wise looking at all that stuff um I wouldn't be upset if they took McDuffie. I just don't think he should be taken until like the late second, truthfully. Same goes for uh, Roger McCurry out of Auburn. He's another guy that is like challenged size-wise, and but he's a really good player. Um, now, Seattle had Trey Brown and DJ Reed starting for a month together before Trey got hurt. And, you know, DJ had, uh, I think, a COVID absence. Maybe they're okay with that. That said, there was a play, I think, where Trey Brown was, a, again, a cover two corner, and he got underneath, like, a corner out in the high red zone and, like, made a perfect play except for the fact that the ball went an inch over his fingertip. Um, I, I, Do you guys remember that one, or am I imagining that? Like, he elevated as far as he could. I mean, he timed it right. He just was too short. Um so I don't, I mean, Seattle, I, I think Seattle's open-minded on the shorter guys. I think they're relaxing their length threshold, but I still think that they, that doesn't mean they don't like the lengthier guys. Um, so I don't know, man, it's, it's, it's where it gets really confusing for me. Um, if you make a face about McDuffie, you're not a fan of, of Seattle doing that early either. No, I, th- I think it's too early there. I think they have so many needs and McDuffie, again, he's a really clean prospect. 
but he's got really short arms, sub 30 inch arms. Yeah. So it's a theme for this whole class. I feel like, I mean, it, even like the edge guys and stuff, it's just a T-Rex class. It is. Yeah. It's a, it's a, yeah. Every, that's the thing with this class. There's not a lot of like clean blue chip prospects. Right. So there's, there's something with everyone. So McDuffie to me, he's a solid player. Like, if you're a team like Baltimore or Philly where your roster is really rounded out, he makes a ton of sense. You bring him in, he's, he'll stabilize your back end. But for Seattle, they really need to be building block players. And you guys have talked about the quarterbacks. So that's for another show. But to me, like that's the thing. If you, don't, if you take a quarterback, they're great. It's the most important position. But if you're going to take a defensive guy, it's going to be to me someone you're going to build a position group around and you're picking the top 10. To me, McDuffie is just a tier below. Like I looked at the other day, his over under 17 and a half in the first round. Really? I think that's a good indication of where he is. He's like the middle of the first round kind of guy. He's solid. But to me, Seattle needs like, look at their cornerback group. Trey Brown looked pretty good, but they don't have that guy that you see. Like that's where Stingley and Sauce can be that Pro Bowl kind of guy to build the group around. Edge rush, same sort of thing. They have good pieces. We Taylor showed that this year, but. So my, my whole issue with McDuffie is not nothing really against him. He's a very solid prospect. And like, if you were looking at like the 2017 Seahawks, he'd be a great player to pick, but just for where Seattle is right now, I think I need a little more. What I'm hearing is he's a rascal pick. Hmm. Like the yeah. safe, clean, not, you know, no like building block tools physically, but like a really clean, uh, knows how to play football guy. That's a pretty good assessment. He's, like, to me, Seattle just needs a little more upside. If, if they're picking in the top 10, if you move down and you, you look at him and we'll talk about some of the edge rushers in a bit, it's fine. But to me, I think they need to strive a little higher. So we spent quite a bit of time on cornerback. We'll, we'll jump to a new position here in a minute. But one, one guy I wanted to ask about. Uh, so he gets people when they're doing the PFF mocks, a lot mm. of Jalen Petrie because he's a corner, which people want to address. Uh, and he's always right there at Seattle's picks at 40. But to me, when I watch Jalen Petrie, I think calling him a corner is generous. Uh, uh, I see more safety. And honestly, you know, he has uh, strong blitz boy vibes. I mean, he's constantly <laughs> blitzing. And um, so I, I'm curious if either of you have thoughts on him um, and whether you think he's someone that Seattle could be interested in. To me, he makes maybe some sense, you know, if Seattle's looking at, you know, just kind of a, a defensive weapon that you can move around and do some different stuff and find different ways to bring pressure in kind of an amoeba type defense. But uh, yeah, I, 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 he seems to jack of all trade, master, master of none for me. Uh, Griff, have you watched him at all? Uh, only when in watching Kalen Barnes, that guy that Seattle supposedly is connected to. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. He's an interesting player, but I mean, between Jamal Adams, Marquise Blair, and Ryan Neal, Seattle has enough of that guy that you can just float around and do really, you know, interesting things with. Um, so I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't touch him at forty or forty-one personally. I don't know, Jeff. How do you feel? Yeah, and the comp he gets around the league. I don't, obviously, I don't know if I'll ever hit the ceiling in terms of playing style. Is the Honey Badger? So I think you're. I don't think he'll ever be as good as Tryon Matthew is, but I think in terms of just how he's used. So Nathan, I think you covered it perfectly. I don't think anyone would call the honey badger who, who technically was a corner when he came out of the draft, but I don't think they'd call him a corner. He's more of a slot guy. He's more of a safety. And 
the way they play is very similar. And I, I, I know like teams who are picking at the end of the first, early in the second, see him as like, if you need a safety, you can kind of cover a lot of ground. The blitz boy is a great comparison. That's honey badgers, one of his best skills. So to me, the, the, the fin Seattle doesn't make sense at all. I think based on what they have, they're really deep at safety. It's probably their best position group. And with all the pieces they need to add elsewhere to me, I know he is listed as a corner. To me, that's a misleading description of how he plays. Yeah, I think my perception of him would be quite a bit different if he was just listed as a safety. Um, but uh, yeah, he's fun to watch, though. I mean, he's one of those guys that like I, I would not want to necessarily bet against because there's some clear kind of physical. He's real twitchy and seems bursty. And so a lot of fun, but I don't really see it for Seattle. Um, so kind of on that note, um, one of the, I think, the guys that was most like just immediately popped off the tape for me and was the most like, holy shit, this guy's crazy and was fun to watch was Aiden Hutchinson. Um, as I've watched more, you know, there are some flaws to his game and, uh, you know, he's being talked about as the number one overall pick for a, a reason. That seems a little stretch, a bit of a stretch to me, but he's just this huge, like, energetic, uh, you know, strong uh, defensive end. Um, I don't think there's really any chance that he gets to Seattle, but Griff, what do you think about Aiden Hutchinson? Do you think he's a, a typical number one pick? Um, and kind of how would he maybe fit with Seattle if he did somehow manage to make it to nine? Yeah, I think most drafts, he's a kind of guy that should be going in like that seven to 12 range. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if he's like a classic number one. I think he lacks the super high end, like, like ex- super explosive wins um, that just like just jump out. But he has he has so many such a high rate of quality wins still. And it's still early enough in the snap where it's going to translate. And he's going to be a good NFL player um, fit wise, you know, because Seattle wants their edges to stand up and he's not a slouch athletically. I mean, he could make it work dropping and stuff, but at six, seven, uh, 260, 265, I just think he needs to be hand in dirt, you know, three point stance, no matter where he goes, be a classic four, three N. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I do think he, he's not quite that traitsy where I'm not sure I have him as the number one edge rusher in this class. Um, he probably, that said, he's probably the safest pick of the high-end guys like i have identified three guys as like the tier one of this class he's probably the safest um and you know he'll probably go top five and will be a good player for whoever takes him but i don't think he's seattle's best fit even even if even if you are high in him i think stylistically he doesn't really fit seattle um i'm not sure he wants to drop either i'm not sure he would want to go to a 314 that said so i don't know jeff where are you on uh, on hutch yeah, I think Hutchinson's a very good just reflection of how the top of this draft is described. I think Hutchinson is a very, I guess, well-rounded, good prospect. He's fun to watch. He's really smart. He's strong. But if you compare him to like some of the defensive ends that have gone in the top of the draft in recent years, the number one pick kind of guy, Miles Garrett, the Bosa brothers, he's just not there. And Chase Young, he's just a tier even two below. And again, I think Hutchinson, just based on the draft class, I think he's like the perfect Dan Campbell kind of guy. Detroit picks number two. I know it probably sounds maybe a little racist because he's white. I don't know. But no, he, he fits Detroit. Yeah, he, he played at Michigan. Like, I can't yeah. see him getting past number two. So I don't know if we even have to worry much about his fit in Seattle. I don't know. Again, the three, four bare front. I don't know if that's the best use. A lot of the 
the comps that a lot of the draft guys have been making is Jared Allen. Again, I think probably because that's because he's white. Uh, I think it's an easy comp to make. There's some, they, they have a little bit of a different game, but he's not that like jump off the page athlete that the Bosa's are. He's yeah. a, but he's a very good, again, clean player that will easily go like uh, eight to 12. That's a good description of where he normally go. And look, the word on this draft is like, Last year, you had guys like Micah Parsons and Rashawn Slater go in the teens, 12 and 13. Those guys, I was told, would be the number one pick in this draft. Yeah. So Hutchinson could – if you had him in last year's draft, he might have gone outside of the top 10. And he's most likely going to go one or two in this draft. So, again, that's nothing against him. He's a very good prospect, clean, but just doesn't have that, like, crazy upside, all-pro kind of player. So I guess we would have said that about J.J. Wall when he came out. But <laughs> – I don't think there's any chance he's even in consideration at nine. Schematically, I don't even know if it's a great fit. So, yeah, let's talk yeah. about that part for a little bit. So, obviously, I think, you know, five years ago, I don't think any of us would be questioning Hutchinson's fit on this team. So, Griff, like, this has been a real point of contention with a lot of fans, too, is, is how often they're dropping some of these ends and, um, you know, asking Benson Mayo to cover uh, running backs out in the flat and stuff like that. How mm-hmm. often is Seattle really doing that? And how often, or how much does that affect how you're evaluating some of these guys? Like, would you rule out someone like Hutchinson for Seattle or is it just kind of a subpar type thing? I, I think it's more so you're just asking, are they particularly deficient at it? And, or do they have any sort of comfort level shown in college that they, that they can drop? And even if, they never did drop. Are they hitting like the height, weight, speed, length stuff where you'd say, okay, that guy can move out in space. Hutchinson probably is knocking on the door of the threshold of like eliminating him from that discussion. Um, yeah. So, but, but to, to the first part of that question, if you want to be a three, four team, you're going to have to rush either edge and be able to drop either edge in any given snap. Because, you know, if you've got, if both of your guys have pass rush makeup, uh, but you're still rushing forward roughly 75% of the time. One of them's dropping. So if you look at the percentages, especially in base defense of a lot of these guys like Cleo Mack, Von Miller, now granted they're really athletic and they do well in coverage, but like they're dropping like anywhere between 10 and 20% of the time on early downs. Um, I'd argue that Seattle dropped Carlos Dunlap as little as they could last year. He was around 9%. Chandler Jones is around nine nine ten percent um and he was on a three four team so yeah uh, i think the the problem perhaps is um you know you'd like them to be good at it when they're dropping now that said i really don't think benson mayoa was and dunlap whether it was um maybe just a results-based perspective it really wasn't hurting them too much i think it's just jarring not to see like well we have a pass rush problem why are they not rushing and that's a valid question, but that's it kind of stems from, yeah, when you're a 3-4 team and you're wanting to play Carlos Dunlap a lot, that means if he's on in there in early downs, you're going to have to drop him or you're losing the inherent advantage of a 3-4. Now, the inherent disadvantage of a 3-4 is, again, is that you're not spaced properly because if you're dropping one of those edges, that means the next guy is a three technique in on B-gap. That's not great spacing for a four-man rush. And that fourth rusher, three of them are 300-pounders and one of them's you know, 250 or whatever. So 
it's you you gain back some of that lost um, advantage by being able to disguise who that fourth rusher is and disguising who that seventh dropper is and then occasionally bringing both right um so it's yeah whoever they're bringing in they're they're gonna have to drop i think mayoa is not i think Mayowa is fine to drop in a hypothetical so long as he's being rotated in and out often enough. They kind of did have to sacrifice him, throw him to the wolves and drop him probably 5% more than they wanted to. But that was to accommodate Carlos Dunlap and Daryl Taylor. If they were rushing Mayowa, if they were dropping Mayowa less, that would have meant dropping Dunlap or Taylor more. So um, if, if, if we're, if we're trying to direct their ire, maybe that directed at John Schneider at not getting the guys that are, ideal at it but um marcus golden was dropping something like 30 percent on early downs in base defense for the cardinals and now they're not playing a lot of base defense that said and neither was seattle really at least not a huge percentage but it's just it's a function of a three four you're gonna have to so um whoever they whoever if they're gonna take a guy at nine in edge he better be able to be the cleanest fit you can think once you start getting into the second and third round, you can think about, okay, this guy doesn't check all the boxes, but you can still get him, find some snaps for him. You know, remember, they're not always going to be living in the three, four front. That's when they go into cover one, cover three, that will allow them to play more four down, you know, even space fronts, let have, have two wide edges get after it, or it doesn't matter as much. But, you know, you want a number nine overall pick, or even if you trade back to the teens, you want that guy to be able to do everything, right? So um, that's where, that's what it comes down to for me. So on that kind of note, then, is is Thibodeau a guy you can drop? Is he kind of the ideal? Uh, I mean, we talked about him a little bit, right? So yeah. is he the ideal end for Seattle out of this class? I think so. I mean, he, he actually didn't drop much in college after all I just said, but he has all the traits, too. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, he you see him like when he is um, – when, when he's like being like – when he's being read by an RPO and you see him in space surfing on the line of scrimmage, or you see like a jet sweep coming his way, I mean, the change of direction is all there. Right. So in, in those instances that translates, and then just, you see him chasing things down to the sideline that probably translates to getting depth in a buzz drop, buzz drop to the flat, right. Drop into the curl flat or whatever it is. I mean, he's got all of it. So I don't think that's too hard to project with him. Um, where it starts to get really interesting is if you value George Karloftis enough as an edge, as a pass rusher to take him at nine, that's where the conversation starts to get a little bit more interesting to me. I mean, they call him the Greek freak, just like Giannis. He absolutely has the traits to where you make it work. Um, I think he played in college at 270. I think he cut weight for the combine. He'll probably try to gain that weight back. Maybe if he goes to 314, he dropped the weight. He has, you probably will have to manage him a little bit more and make those accommodations schematically so that you're probably dropping him near the 10% range in base defense. Um, but there's plenty of precedents for guys that are a little thicker dropping in three, four. I mean, Tom Bahali, Alden Smith gained weight throughout his tenure at San Francisco. Clint Hurt was even talking about how teaching Lamar Houston and Pernell McPhee um to learn how to drop as three four backers when they were handed dirt guys all their career and those guys were like 270 275 i mean even um lamar woodley was drafted at like 250 for the steelers and he was probably gained like five pounds every single season of his career by the end of by the end of the time of his time with the steelers he was probably pushing 280 and they were dick lebeau was still dropping him on occasion so 
I think Karloftis can make it work. Those guys can make it work. Um, it's just, it's not like, you probably have to do a little bit more planning of like, all right, when are we dropping him? What are the fronts? What are the situations? What are the, what are the calls? Whereas with Thibodeau, you're not thinking twice about it. If we need Daryl Taylor to rush, he's rushing. If we need Taylor to drop, he's dropping and Thibodeau's rushing. Like, it's just as easy as pie in that scenario. Karloftis, you got to make some considerations for. But if they value him enough as an edge rusher, you make it work. He can stand up or have his hand in the dirt. So, um, yeah. Jeff, on, on Thibodeau, there's some people in the chat that are saying they, they don't get it with Thibodeau. And I'll, I'll be honest, it took me a little bit with him to really to really get it as like a, you know, a guy that's going maybe, you know, two overall. What do you think of him? So he came into the year and he was like consensus number one prospect in the country. I think that was a lot of hype and a lot of just athletic traits. And when you watch him play, you see flashes. And a lot of like the draft experts or the common people will compare him to his year. to kind of like what Clowney was like in Seattle, if you remember that year where you would watch him and he's like not making an impact. And then all of a sudden he does something that just like flies off the pitch and his flashes are crazy. And so it's, he has such mixed reaction. I don't want to get into the off field stuff because I think that's a little crazy and nonsensical, but you watch him play and the pac 12 is not known for like hulking offensive tackles. And it's like, a, it's a pretty decent conference, but there's not, not a lot of guys where you're, you expect he should be dominating pretty consistently. And the thing is he's not, but his talent level is just so good. It's just a matter of harnessing it. So it's one of those things where it might be like coaching hubris or it might be, like Pete Carroll saying, I can get the most out of him, but you watch him and he's just like, sort of like, remember the defensive ends I brought up earlier. He's just not those guys where just down after down after down, you watch those guys. It's just so much more consistent. He has the talent. It's there. It's just, I don't know if he's loafing. I don't know if I don't want to get into his motor. Cause that might be nonsensical. I know Jeff Schwartz, who's an Oregon guy has shot that down. So you see the talent. It's just not consistent down to down, but I'm just curious. You guys, probably heard these quotes too hurt was on i think the softy show and he talked about how badly they need that like type one type a edge rusher they signed nuosu from the chargers who's a pretty good rusher in smaller samples but do you think if thibodeau or anyone else they can draft in nine do you think that fits who hurt was potentially talking about where they need that guy who's going to dominate and open up things for taylor do you think there's anyone in this draft that does that or is that something maybe you look at in the second round address other places elsewhere um or are you asking me you or nathan any of it okay nathan do you have thoughts there i mean i i think he he can be that guy i think he can be a a blue chip guy what took me a little while with him is i so i compared him to clowny too and not from like an effort level or anything but just from how he uh how he plays uh you know clowny was um a straight ahead you know he wanted to bull rush you inside moves and you know for a while when I was watching Thibodeau that's a lot of what I saw and it took me longer to see the bend in some of the stuff that he can do um than it did with like someone like Carl Aftis or like an, a, a Beckety um so I I've come around on him and I, I do think he can be be a real like stud guy opposite of Taylor to get to to solve that problem for them yeah, I, I agree with you. So I, I'll, I'll cut to the chase and say I think he does have all the blue chip traits. Get off speed, like hark speed, speed to power for his weight, like controlling for density and, and the bend. But w- when you said like that, sh- that the like how he rushes, like trying to bull rush the tackle, 
his rush path is odd for like he he is trying to like turn it up field earlier and trying to work the tackle with power and the thing is he he can do that and be good at it but it's it's you really do wonder what the coaching is like because why are they not telling him just key the ball and get up field more often because when he does do that it's kind of similar with daryl taylor when taylor timed up his snap he looked like von miller at tennessee and he wasn't always rushing that way and you're like well, why isn't he the sure enough when he gets to seattle when it's a pass down he's doing like clint hurt is like harnessing exactly who he is and just getting all of that out of him. A lot of Oregon guys, especially on defense, come out raw. And you start to wonder what, like, Oregon's coaching philosophy is in the terms of not that they're not – not that they're bad at coaching, but they're, like, what is – like, their like their program philosophy in terms of do we need to maximize guys? Do we just scheme and recruit? And then, you know, coaching takes a back seat to that because there's only so much time in a day. And some programs literally – some programs in college will even say, like in clinics, we're not trying to coach guys up, which is odd to, odd to think. Some guys are. And because they want to spend, they want to put their chips in different baskets. And I wonder if Oregon falls under that, falls under that, um, under that idea. So um, when he is trying to rush the way that you think he should be, he looks every bit the part. Now, I will say, I think he has very good bends, not elite bends for a guy that, I think is probably the best edge rusher in the class. Part of that is that he's 6'5". And a lot of super bendy guys are like 6'2", 6'3". 6'5 is getting pretty up there. It's hard to, it's hard to, um, it's hard to like run on a curved path while dropping your hips and getting your body contorted. I think he does it well enough for his size, but it's like, let's just remember this guy is 6'5". He's pretty high cut and he does get low enough for how he needs to play. But like, it, he's not he's not Von Miller, Khalil Mack type bend, but he's not lacking bend where you think you can't take him in the top five. Um, but it comes down to his his rush plan. He just needs to develop it. He needs to get coached. Clint Hurt, his background, even before I mean, he's coached everything on defensive line. But his first NFL job, I'm pretty sure, was outside linebackers in the three four. He's a pass rush specialist. In fact, that was his first title with Chicago. He made Leonard Floyd, in my view, a viable pass rusher when. A lot of guys were like, even though he went in the first round, he was a prospect where guys were like, he's just a traits guy right now. I mean, Clint Hurt got a lot of credit for that. That's why Clint Hurt actually had a um, two or three different NFL teams were in a bidding war for an assistant coach. Clint Hurt develops edge rushers. Even Rasheem Green, who we, he didn't get to his, um, his peak, he was very raw coming out of USC. And we all remember his first preseason games. He was doing things his first preseason game. He did not try one time at USC. So Clint Hurt, I think he gets the most out of guys. Um, granted, he's a defensive coordinator now. You can't spend as much one-on-one -on -one time probably. But I think if you take Kalen Thibodeau, I'd bet on him. I understand the concerns of like, is he a surefire top five, even top 10 pick? But I'd be willing to find out. So that's, that's how I view Thibodeau. Um, so... Speaking of super bendy guys, let's talk about Jermaine Johnson. Uh, uh, I think his biggest knock is probably his lack of bend. Um, he's a guy that I've warmed on a little bit over time. Uh, he is, uh, I think, overaged. Um, he doesn't show a ton of the bend, um, but he is a toolsy traits guy. So um jeff what are your thoughts on jermaine johnson some people have seattle just sitting at nine and taking him there um would you be happy with that pick 
I'd be okay with it. I could convince myself into it. There's just a couple of things that would concern me. He's a little older. I think it's closer to 23, 24. Um, not 24, isn't he? I think. I, I believe so. We, we've, we've hammered on the Seahawks for the, they're just not valuing the age. And I, I really think it's a problem with their just models. They're missing league trends. And like you look at Buffalo, I think all of Buffalo's first round picks since Brandon Bean got there have been 21 years old. So I know Andrew Barry and Cleveland, I know they've placed a huge emphasis. So the age thing doesn't great. I think Seattle will like him. He has a really good tenure split and they've had historically a very high emphasis on that split when they evaluate edge rushers. And the thing with Johnson, he's a, he's a one-year guy. He, he had to transfer out of Georgia because he was behind Trevon Walker. And one of Georgia's guys next year is going to maybe their best pass rusher of all these guys. And so he goes to Florida state. He has a really good year. He dominates the senior bowl. Like he looked incredible at the senior bowl from all indications. And all of a sudden he was like a guy going in like the late twenties is now a top 10 pick. So you kind of wonder how these guys who don't play all of a sudden jump from 28 to like eight in the draft by not playing. So I, I think there's some red flags there where it's only been one year. He's a little older. He's not the most bendy explosive guy either. So again, I think pass rush is such a huge need that like I could convince myself into it, but I wouldn't be thrilled about it. I think he's probably similar to what I was saying, McDuffie. He's probably a prospect I see closer to the middle of the first round. And I think there's a lot of people who think he's going to go in the top eight. And Atlanta apparently is high on him. The Jets coached him at the senior bowl where that was him his best. So if Thibodeau's gone, that could be an option. But to me, I'm not super excited about that. I think there's some better options at nine. So he's actually 23 in this book. Um, yeah. Trayvon Walker, George Karlaftis, Kayvon uh, Thibodeau, they're all 21. So he is uh, older for sure, but he's not quite LJ Collier old. Um, uh, Griffin, does does Jermaine Johnson have the tools for Clint Hurt to do some magic? I, I really like Johnson. He's a guy where I just feel like, like you're, you, you're just very firm. Well, what am I saying? I, I liked him a lot in the 20s, basically, is how I view him. Um, I really like the type of player is. I think his potential is that of like a super high-end, or not, maybe not super high-end, but a high-end number two edge rusher. And those guys are signed for $15 million per year every offseason in free agency. So um, I think he would make them better. I don't know if it's the best use of number nine. It's, it is concerning that he, I mean, he really doesn't bend as much as you'd want, but he is explosive. He does have get off. Like Jeff said, that 10 yard split is there. He is a guy that likes to corner hard on tackles. Like he likes to manufacture the corner where you're just getting past them by like bullying your way there, but it's, it's power. It's strength. There's a lot of technique there. And I think he understands that he under he tends to rush as though he knows he doesn't have a lot of bend. You see that with like, a lot of jab steps with his inside foot on tackles to make them shorten the depth the tackles are getting so that by the time he beats the tackle, it's at a shallower depth than it would be otherwise where his bend would become a problem. So like he understands who he is as a rusher. Um, there are some production issues, but I, in terms of like what translates to the next level, but I think that if he can kind of, again, same idea with Thibodeau, if he can, if, if he can maximize, like his approach and probably with good coaching and stuff. And if he's accentuated, right, he can get there to where he can, um, 
like smooth out those production concerns. Cause I think like even Taylor wasn't crazy productive, but if you, if you isolate the snaps that really matter, I still see it with Jermaine where it can translate. It's just, if my thinking was before the Wilson trade, Seattle had uh, 41, right? Not 40. Yeah. I was yeah. thinking, man, can they find a way to like trade up into like the late third, uh, late twenties for him? And I would have been really, I would have been happy with that. Now they probably shouldn't have traded up just from a, I know like trading up is advised against, but if you're going to trade up for someone, I wouldn't have been terribly upset if it was Jermaine Johnson. I just, I can't fathom taking him at night. If they trade back, he should be one of the guys there that they should consider if they trade back into the teens, maybe, but um, I don't know. I like him a lot. I just think he is exactly what you see. I don't think he is like a classic top 15, top 10 guy. Yeah. You hear a lot about like speed to power, right? Guys who translate their speed into being able to bull rush or, or, you know, different power moves in a path rush. Johnson's the opposite. He's power to speed almost like you're saying he, <laughs> he does a lot of stuff to, you know, uh, mitigate kind of his lack of bend. Uh, super strong uh, hands and arm, like he, he's yeah, uh, technique wise, really good. So, um, if and should also, down- yeah. So sorry to cut you off. Also, to his credit, he's an awesome run defender. I mean, tackles for loss, just blowing up guys, like to the point where you might say it matters, just because he's generating negative plays when they run the ball. So, I know that running the ball is negative to begin, with, but uh, he makes it even more negative, um, and he makes you versatile. You like you don't have to hide it. Right. So that means you get to play him in different scenarios. So Um, there's a lot of guys still to talk about. I know we're running pretty long at this point. Um, One guy that I just I I just don't want to see Seattle draft. I don't really get it at all. Trayvon Walker. Um, Jeff, I know we talked about him a little bit on our last pod and, and you were saying and everyone like everything I see has him going, you know, top 10. Like he's super popular, but. I don't, I don't get it. Can you sell me on Trayvon Walker? Well, and the funny part is I don't disagree with you at all. Yeah. I'm just going on what I'm thinking is going to happen. So I, teams tend to draft traits over production. And I think what happens is there's – and we've seen it with Seattle. I think teams overcompensate for things that have happened in the league. And I think you look at some of these guys and they're looking for that blue chip player. And they're going to convince themselves into it and – we saw the guy in Baltimore last year, OA, where he had zero, one or zero or one sack at Penn State the year before. And he was this traitsy, toolsy guy. He went at the end of the first round and he came out in a really, really good year with Baltimore. I think Danielle Hunter in Minnesota was kind of similar. So mm-hmm. Walker, the whole thing is pure projection because when you watch him, like he's raw. He's, he doesn't seem to have a plan when he rushes. He, he's sort of all over the place, but it's just physical profile. If you look at the, those like charts that we see online, his spider web thing is crazy. And I think it's just a situation where there's no blue chip players and someone like Trent Balky or Detroit is going to convince himself into him. And I'm with you, Nathan. I don't, I don't see it. Like he was at the Georgia defense that they were full of talent. So it's hard to like see what their responsibilities were. Cause there was just so much talent around the defense, but he's just a really raw player that isn't an established rusher. And to be good in the NFL, you have to be really good with your hands. And it's a big projection. And I think what happens is teams just go on traits a lot. We see a lot of the busts that happen in the top 10 are situations like that. And just, I'm going on what I'm hearing. I I'm, I would not take him in the top five. I would even be a little nervous with him and not. So I think he's going to go in the top five. And I think 
that's the biggest potential for a bus pick in this draft. Griffin, is there is there more to Trayvon Walker than his spider web, or is that, is that it? Um, well, I think fortunately, like I like the idea, but of him in general. But I think fortunately, we don't have to worry about whatever roller coaster he will be forever drafting, just because I don't think he's a style fit. Uh, like I, I mean, he has the athleticism, you know, to drop, but I think he's going to go to a four three team or a team that is even playing him inside in a pinch, even in the three four because he's so strong. One thing I will say about him, if anyone's hopeful for him, maybe that's listening that isn't even a Seahawks fan, um, he run defense is coached. Like you can't get good at run technique without assuming that you've been coached well. And he is not just a good run defender because he has the traits for it, but his technique is immaculate in that area. So if he can take to that coaching, then theoretically, if he's drafted to the right team that can teach him stuff, basically go be Ziggy Anza. That's who you should be stylistically as a pass rusher. Then maybe you think, well, he's coachable and he has the traits. All right, we'll take him. Um, I just, I, I don't, I mean, you're, you're, you are drafting Pandora's box with him. It could be amazing. It could be nothing. It could be a box of chocolates. It could be a rock. You know, you just don't know what you're getting. So I don't want Seattle to be the one to find out, even if it pays off for whoever takes him. Um, yeah, I agree with you guys. I just don't think they can, they can, they, they need, they need, they need to blend potential and floor ceiling and floor with this pick if you're going at nine. So, and I'm just not sure what his floor is as a pass rusher or, I mean, potential or floor, you know. It's funny that you guys mentioned Ziggy and Daniel Hunter because I pulled them up on mock draft pool real quick just to get a look at that spider web. And uh, Ziggy is the number three comp, then Preston Smith, then Daniel Hunter, then Joel Tryon. Uh, you got Jadavian Clowney and Robert Quinn on this list of top 10 comps. Just athletic going off the combine numbers, but uh, and there's some there's some busts in here too, but that's a that's not a bad list to be a part of. Uh, okay, so um, Carl Aftis, you mentioned him, Griffin. Uh, you you talked me into him as an option at nine. Uh, I think betting markets have him his over under at something like 30 and a half. Um, really? So, huh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> how do you like why? I guess why are yeah, why are the betting yeah. markets so much lower? Well, I don't that that's interesting to me, maybe because. You know, honestly, I, I don't know. I, I feel like a lot of I've, so I've looked at a lot of the odds, too. And I, like I'm an amateur in every sense of the word. But like to me, it just seems like this draft feels so different than what I feel like it should be. Like just even if I'm particularly lower or higher on a guy, I would think that, well, I feel like consensus would like this guy more or like him less than me most years. And even like that, I can't square the betting, the odds with even that type of thinking. So. To me, I think, long story short, Karloftis, while I don't think he's the best edge prospect, I think there's a reality, you know, you run the simulation enough times where he ends up being the best pass rusher in this draft across all positions. He just has absurd speed to power. And, I mean, he has absurd explosive explosion considering his density. I mean, they call him the Greek freak. He's skilled too. He's not a raw player. Um I think maybe the, the biggest drawback, and again, it's relative, is that he's not like a classic edge burner. He's not going to get the edge just with pure speed often enough to where it's just like the tackle is just like I can't, couldn't keep up with him. But he's not lacking in that area either. Um, he's really skilled. He knows how to, like when he gets decent position on the tackle, but not enough to just get into a rip and bend it 
like Jermaine, he knows how to corner, but he can also get that position. He doesn't have to do it with a bunch of like fancy footwork. He can get there with speed, but then he can finish it with hands, right? Whereas Thibodeau can just get there with speed and use hands if he needs to, but not always. Karloftis isn't just going to get there with speed, but he can still, he can, he can get himself in the right spot. Um, he's really good at like getting his hips toward the quarterback to set up his hands. That was something that always frustrated with me. Frank Clark, Clark had all the speed in the world. He had hands, he had strength and everything, but he would not turn his body toward the tackle while he's, while he's turning the arc, rushing the arc to use his hands. So he effectively had no knockdowns. Karloftis is really complete. If I'm splitting hairs with Karloftis and, and I'll, and I'll say I would take him at nine. The one thing that would, irk me about him is that he's better off the left side he's more comfortable turning or bending flattening toward the quarterback off the left side on the right side you see him rearing up and retrace a little bit and you're wondering wait why didn't he just bend that there's a snap before where he is doing it and then you're like oh the theme here is off the left side he will try to turn that corner on the right side he'll try to counter late and it's usually the ball is out by then so where that matters is Daryl Taylor can rush e either side, but he seems more comfortable off the left side. He uses more of his hands, more power moves off the left side. And if you've got two guys where they prefer the left side, then there's going to be an automate out. And you're not going to maximize them when they're rushing off the right side. Now he's good enough. And I think Taylor will be good enough where it doesn't matter too much, but we kind of have to remember Cliff Averill ruined Bruce Irvin's career in the sense that Irvin had an awesome, his best year was his rookie year. And look at all of his snaps are off the left side. All of his highlights in college are off the left side. Cliff Averill only rushed off the left side. He even said so in a podcast. Bruce Irvin got moved to the right side, and that might have thrown off his uh, career trajectory. So I don't think that will be as extreme with Taylor if he gets moved or if Karloftis has to – they have to split reps at left side. But um, another argument for Thibodeau is that Thibodeau is equally comfortable off each side, at least on tape. They might say something different in a press conference, but he seems as good off the right as he does off the left. So Thibodeau is just like the perfect fit in that sense, um, scheme and roster or roster wise. Karloftis, you got to make a couple more accommodations for. So it's not just quite the slam dunk, even if you're all in on him as a pass rusher. So. That's really interesting. I don't think I've, I've ever, you know, I've, I've heard about like, you know, offensive tackles moving from left side to right side and how that can mess with you. But I don't think I've ever heard about uh, defensive ends having that same Zoolander aspect where they can only turn left or turn right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, Jeff, have you watched much of Carl Aftis? Are, are you, are are you taking him at nine? He's one, like I wouldn't jump off the couch, like pumped up, but. I'd be totally fine with it. His playing strength is so good. And I know you've talked about his speed to power, but just he looks so – yeah, it's just rare to see how like strong he is at the point of attack. And I think that will really complement some of the guys they have on their team right now where you have Daryl Taylor, who's a really good speed rusher. He showed some power at the end of last year a little better on his hips. And the other guy they got from the Chargers, he's, a, he's more of a quick first step kind of guy. So it really would round them out as a pass rushing group. I think he's really solid. I know there's that comparison to Ryan Kerrigan a lot, but I think athletically he actually projects to some better players around the league. I saw some athletic comparisons to him, and I think he's just a really well-rounded, solid, good prospect. I think he's a good player. that you He's kind of a guy you just want on your team. So if they take him a nine, I think it really adds to the defensive line as a whole. And one of the things I've talked about a lot over the last few months 
just not regard to this pick in general, but this hit me in the playoffs a lot. And when you watch the playoffs, almost every game we talk about quarterbacks, it was these blue chip, doesn't have to be blue chip, it's just defensive linemen that took over almost every single playoff game. And we talked about Russell Wilson and how many playoff games they won. Who on this defense has been the kind of guy that's, I'm kind of getting away from our point here, but I think he's the kind of guy that you just throw him in. He's the kind of guy that can take over one of those playoff games. Just, we really haven't seen that kind of game from a defensive lineman other than that clowny game in San Francisco that one year where you just see what a, a, a bull rushing like game record can do. And I think Karlaftis projects as someone who can do that. And to me, just having someone who can wreck a game to me is what this defense has been lacking. I think I really would round out everything they have where you can now use Jamal Adams differently. So I think if you can get that game wrecker pass rusher somewhere in this draft, and I think Karlaftis does have that kind of potential. I think that's really important for this group as they rebuild because the rest of the group is pretty well-rounded out. Maybe they need one corner and maybe another linebacker to compete with Barden, but that's really the one thing that's holding back this group from being really projecting really, really good. So Carl, I think Carl Aptis with his playing strength is just, I think he's a pretty safe floor. I would be okay with it. I know people might want to shoot a little higher, but I'd be totally on board with it. So there are a set of guys that are expected to go, you know, towards the end of the first, maybe, maybe still be alive at, at 40. Uh, I think that includes guys like, is it Boye Mafi? Am I saying that right? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then, um, you know, uh, uh, Ojabo, I hope I'm saying that one right too. <laughs> I realize I spent very little name time listening to actual names on this. Um, Beckety, um, you know, there's, there's kind of a few different guys here. Um, Jeff, are, are any of these guys interesting enough for you where you would maybe pass on, you know, a, a Thibodeau or one of the guys at nine, look at a different position and maybe prioritize finding one of these guys, you know, at the bottom of the second instead? Ojabo is the guy that really interests me. I thought he was, I was really into him as a prospect before he got injured as pro date. I thought his ceiling, he's really raw coming out. It's kind of similar to Hunter and, where he, he just has, he just loaded with athletic talent. There's a lot of people who liked him as a player more than Hutchinson. And he, he just flew up the screen. So to me, it just really depends on where Carol and Schneider are as an organization right now. Cause you talk to some of us on the pod or you, you go on Twitter for a minute. I know Griff kind of skews away from this, which is, I always found his opinion interesting. A lot of people look at our team as like a total rebuild. They need to rebuild position groups. And if Carol and Schneider are looking at it that way, and they're looking at this more three years out, we're rebuilding and someone like Ojabo would make a ton of sense. If you're admitting, okay, maybe we get nothing from him this year, but he's the guy who could be a top 15 player in this draft next year. So knowing what we know about Carol, I think Carol probably views it similar to how Griff does that. I think they're trying I think they view it as their couple pieces away. So that makes me less likely to think they'd go in that direction. So I know the guy from Penn state. I, I know you talk about him a lot. I think he would be the ideal. Yeah. His second round, I think for him, like him at 40 or 41 to me would be ideal. I don't know if it'll last that long, but I think he excites me a little more than Boye Mafe. But to me, Ojabo, if you're looking at this as like, we could take some chances. We have, we have a lot of holes. We have a lot of picks in the next two years. This guy's got the huge ceiling. We have the luxury of we can be patient. I may, That might be more of a Schneider opinion, but I don't know if Carol will do that. But for me, if the way I'm looking at this thing, I would be totally excited about something like that because they might be getting a top 10 player at 40. 
Griffin, you weren't as big a fan of Ajabo, right? Um, I wasn't only relative to like what he was being talked about. Like, I totally see the path. I see the traits. You know, I everything Jeff was saying, like, I get it. And if they were to take him, I even before, like, before the, the injury, I would, like, embrace the concept of what Ojibo is when you take him or Ojibo. Um, uh, the, way I, the way I rank these edges, and I actually have Epiketty in the first round, I think. I don't know if that's where he'll go. But I, I ranked them, you know, I think Thibodeau and then some – you know, combination of, well, not combination, but like Hutch and Karloft is right there with each other. And then I went Ebiketti. Um, and then um, Ojibo right after him. And then Jermaine right after Ojibo. And the reason why I went Ebiketti over Ojibo was more like uh, I'm betting on one guy's floor over the other guy's ceiling. And, and then that's all, that's all it is. It's just like, uh, I kind of want a guy like right now will we'll get you there. I'll have a little more assurance. That said, I don't think Ebiketti is, his ceiling is like, that far away now he's a senior um and that's where most of his production came i watched him at temple before he transferred to penn state and he was the same player i don't i i think he just wasn't being used as much um I, I don't know what his like rates were like per snap um but like i saw the same traits and stuff like that so but the way i view abiketti is he he's a classic like you know six two six three two fifty edge rusher like get off bend all that stuff. He's got good speed to power for his weight. He has good hands. It's just everything instead of great is simply like good to very good. Like literally every single, he checks all the boxes. They're just not top 15. They're like, to me, 16 to 25. And um, the fact that he also is hitting on the production, that's why I kind of put him above Jermaine Johnson. And then even further, he's a scheme fit um, in a 3-4, a little bit more squarely than Jermaine. Again, Jermaine can handle it. I just think Ebiketti's change of direction is a little bit better out in space when he's not rushing the passer. But I think Ebiketti's really good. And um, I would not, if they trade back into the teens, I'd consider taking him there. Um, if they're if they're put out of, you know, competition for someone really exciting at 10, not even at, at edge, but like a corner or even offensive tackle, if that's who they want, I, I'd take him there and I'd be pretty stoked about it. I think you're going to get exactly what you see. I think it's a really good combination of floor and ceiling with him. Um, again, Ojibo, I, don't know, I mean, with the injury now, I don't think you can take him. If he's there, if they do something weird like trade back in the second and he's there and you get an extra third-round pick, sure, go for it. Take a flyer on him. Um, uh, you know, so that's that's how I view Abiketti. Boy, Mafi, though, he's a guy who, when I was watching him, before I knew what people thought about him, like my honest take was that, oh, this is a really high-quality third-rounder. And then his combine happened and, and you know, all the, the post, the postseason stuff occurred and people were talking about him like fringe first. And I'm like, Oh really? I'm not sure I see that. However, but I still think that he's going to go in the second. Like you, if you want him, he's got to go in the second. Um, I don't see his combine on tape. I still see a really good player. I see a guy that would be a quality number two edge rusher. It's going to get you production. Um, he's really skilled. I just I see a lack of like easy wins. He earns and fights for everything and he earns it at a high rate. So we're like, okay, good player, but you're just not seeing the super translatable reps like where he just kills a guy with speed or kills a guy with a counter mover, you know, converting to power. It's like where are those plays? To me, that's why he's probably should be taken like in the middle of the second, the earliest, but he makes Seattle better if they take him anyway. You know what I'm saying? So 
That's, that's how I view him. But I'm, I maybe I'm higher on him than most, but I really like Devin Kenny, though. So uh, I'm going to take a quick pause. Uh, Sean Pyle in the chat uh, uh, did a super chat, and he had a question. Uh, if we had the number one pick and couldn't trade back, who would uh, who would it be that you guys take? So, Griffin, I think we already know you'd take Desmond Ritter. But, Jeff, who would you take at number one? Is it one of the guys we already talked about? I think, yeah, I think I would take Thibodeau. And I think the three guys I'd consider are Thibodeau, Stingley, and Iki Aquanu on the offensive line. I think Aquanu, and we'll probably talk about this if we do another show offensively, Aquanu was described to me as like the ultimate zone blocking left tackle. And in other schemes, he might not be the best left tackle. He's like his run blocking already is a very high level. So he'd fit the scheme really, really well. So it'd be hard to pass on him given how important left tackle is. But to me, I'd want either the edge rusher, dominant edge rusher, and I'd probably go with Thibodeau. All right, so let's close out this edge class by talking about some of the guys in more of the second round to the third round range. I think uh, Bonito, uh, Enigbare, uh, Drake Jackson. Um, who are some other names that I'm missing in this range? Tyreek um, Smith, maybe. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, Griffin, I, I think I know who your favorite of the bunch is here. Um, do you want to tell us who you kind of like at that third round pick? I um... I like Benito a lot. Well, first of all, let me say, I think Drake Jackson probably is the most prudent pick if he's there. I mean, you could even consider him at 40, 41. I mean, he has the traits and I don't really like his tape, but like I tend to dwell on his bad tape for whatever reason. But like, if you isolate his good tape, it's like, okay, that projects pretty well. So like against my own personal preference, I think you probably have to consider him. But yeah, my favorite guy is Nick Benito. And I typically really dislike edge rushers that don't have a, like good handwork because I just think, well, you can't just rush speed at time after time. He's one of those guys where I kind of break my own, not like I have rules that I wrote down somewhere, but my own personal like rules, if you want to call it that. Now, bear in mind, the last guy that I did this with was Ja'Kai Polite, and that didn't turn out <laughs> too good. So um, I'm just being honest you there. You so- well though, right? No, he didn't test well. That's and I and I was still like, okay, his combine's fixed. So it turns out actually, I heard with Jakai Polite, and I think this actually went like lots of people got a hold of this. The guy has amazing effort on field, but he literally did not work out like off field. Like the guy never picked up a weight. He didn't do any cone drill. <laughs> he just showed up and rushed the passer and played with his hair on fire at uh, in college. So Nick Benito. Um, so the main things, the main drawbacks of Nick Benito before I get into what I really like about it. He played in college at 235. He's light. His play strength is an issue against the run. Um, rushing the passer, though, that's where I'm like, well, wait a second. I think he's a viable edge rusher because, yeah, first things first, first, things first. this guy is like, get off and run the yard. Just blows by, blows by tackles all the time. Um, but then in the NFL, you know, the average offensive tackle is more athletic. They're going to get his hands on him. What happens? Well, for me, for a guy that is 230, rushed at two, listed at 240, rushed at 235, according to him, and then he, he, he tested at 248, which is a good sign. He tested well, so maybe he can keep that weight. But for me, it's when speed rushers get into their rip, and like you know, like and that's usually their main move, right? Dip and rip, right? You, you, you want to look at what depth they're getting into it. And then once they get into it, relative to where that was, how far are they being driven past the quarterback? 
And he's routinely getting into his rip at four to six yards, which that in itself speaks to his snap timing and get off. That's really shallow to get into a rip. And then by the time he's getting to the quarterback in his successful, successful reps, even if it's not a sack, he's only being driven to like six to eight yards. And that's a pretty good depth to be driven to because it's when you start getting to the 10 to 12 yards where you're like, okay, the, you're only getting a sack if the quarterback holds the ball. And I'm thinking like this guy's been through contact for his weight is pretty impressive. Now he is getting driven, but it's like he's still staking pretty well and maintaining his path often enough. And the frequency at which he's doing this, I'm like, I wanted to dismiss him outright just for his weight. But like, I think in pure pass rush situations, you know, third down, he can just time the snap. You can just jump the snap. He's going to be a viable NFL pass rusher. The other thing is he understands that tackles are going to set to him a certain way and they're going to overplay his speed. So he understands how important it is for him to establish a two-way go early in games. He has a lot of reps where he's countering inside, like a Euro step inside. You know, think Frank Clark against the Raiders in 20, I think, 18 against their left tackle that year where he had a bunch of inside moves. Benito understands when he has a one-on-one tackle, when the when the protection's sliding away from him, when he has a three technique next to him occupying the guard, he has that tackle on an island. He's going to rush speed early in the game. They're going to start to overset him. He breeds that so quickly. I just think he's a smart player, and he understands what he needs to do to have a viable presence on the field. And it's establishing that two-way go. Um, and he also, guys that tackles that are really trying to keep up with him downfield, he has enough power in him, if he can get them off balance, to read that and get their hands on him and work inside um, if he really has a tackle off balance. So I think he just has just enough of the things in the other areas that are weaknesses to his game to offset, to make his meat and potatoes, his speed rush, be viable in the NFL. Now, you can only bring him in on third downs. You can only bring him in in sub packages, but that's still you know 40 per- 40% of the snaps. That's going to be somewhere between 300 and 500 snaps a year, and he's going to be getting you crazy pressure. Cliff Averill got the production that he did in 2013, and he only played 500 snaps that year. I think you can find 400 snaps for Benito um, for Seattle. So I think he'll get pressure. Um, So that's how I view Benito. Benito actually weighed in heavier than Bruce Bruce Irvin. I know that's not what he played at, um, but Bruce weighed at – 245 and Benito is 248. Yeah, good sign. And hopefully you can keep that weight, you know. Yep. So uh question for you guys though. How how would you guys feel about Jordan Davis at number nine? Yeah, I was gonna go there. So uh, okay. I find so the two defensive tackles to me are really interesting. We can start with Davis. Uh, I, there's a lot of people who have because I've I've been talking about Davis on Twitter and I mocked him. And one thing that I've heard that does really concern me is that he doesn't have the stamina to be a three down player, not the traditional, he's 340 pounds. You can't play him on passing downs, but that he like will get too tired and just can't do it. So that does worry me. And I don't know how much there really is to that, but like Davis seems like such a foundational player where you can, yeah, it's a run. He's a run game guy, and the run isn't as valuable. I mean, I'll obviously be the first one to say that, but I just and Griff, I'm really interested to hear kind of what you think here. But it seems to me that if I was a coach and I had Jordan Davis on the line, I could do really different things with my scheme because I know he just makes the the, the offense's life a nightmare 
trying to run the ball. I agree with you. I mean, I agree with you. When you think about how the run fits fit together, because even when teams go into too high, they're still trying to defend the run in it. And it's really hard to do that. Um, well, I mean, it's, the numbers aren't that crazy, but if you look at like rushes on third and long, when defenses really aren't defending the run, that average yard per carry skyrockets. Now it's still not better than the average pass, but if you imagine if you had that type of running efficiency on early down with the conflict that would create, because the average run could still go for six yards and you're like, you do not want to be giving up six yards, right? So that, all that is to say is when teams are playing, prioritizing the pass, they're still defending the run. When you've got a guy like Jordan Davis, you basically cheat arithmetic. You cheat math. He's a two-for-one player. And that allows you to free up really however you want to fit the run, any given guy in the secondary, because usually someone has support, even if they don't have like a, like, even if they're not a true run fitter, like say there's eight gaps and you're only defending the run with seven guys, you still have like secondary run support, but even like Brandon Staley, he has eight gaps. He's usually defending the run with eight guys. He's just doing it by cheating, by having uh, Aaron Donald and their other guy who they no longer have, who Staley just signed in LA, I think. Just yeah, yeah, Sebastian Joseph Day. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, they're, they're, they use them to, like, buy time for whoever that secondary guy is, and they can choose who that secondary guy is depending on the front and what the situation is. And that sort of thing allows you to be more versatile in coverage, allows you to diversify who's covering what. You know, too, not all too high coverage is the same, right? You can, if you've got a guy isolated and you want that, the near safety to give the corner help, then he can't be involved in the run in any way, shape, or form. So where you put that defensive lineman just makes it so much easier. Um, so, yeah, there is value there. If if Seattle for 2022 did not re-sign Al Woods and they didn't have Brian Mona on the team already, who's also a good nose tackle, I would be more open to it. But I just think for 20 – and now Al Woods is only on a one-year deal, right? But for 2022's purposes, I think they can better spend nine. But I think Jordan Davis is every bit the freak that he's billed as, you know, as a nose tackle. And he can rush the passer. It's just you can't put him on the field for that long. It's so hard for a guy at that weight to do anything, let alone play 50 snaps in an NFL game. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure how, how I feel about him at nine. But I like him a lot, you know, so – and this is why I was kind of asking about like second round guys, like do any of them, do you like them enough to maybe go a different direction at nine? I think like, obviously if Thibodeau's there at nine, you take him over Davis, but I don't think that's really realistic. So if we're talking about Carl Aftis or Jermaine Johnson or Trayvon Walker, like to me, I think it's much more appealing to do something like Davis and Mafe than maybe Carl Aftis and, I mean, you can do a lot of different things in the second round. So there's a lot of options there too, but I think it's an interesting balance. What, what do you think? Sure. Yeah, it's just, I'm really conflicted because I've been trying to the last little bit, trying to get myself in Carol and Schneider's head. And I know it's, I don't think I've ever been able to predict what they're going to do in the first round. Right. From, I think from my standpoint, I've, I've always wanted players and they've never drafted the player I've wanted. And then when I've tried to figure out what they're going to do, I've completely whiffed again. So I can't like help but think like Pete Carroll looks at Jordan Davis and is just like in love, but it's just so conflicting because I know if they take him like a certain subsect of Seahawks Twitter are just gonna hate the idea of taking a run stuffing defensive tackle. Seattle's already a meme in some respect. Yes, he will. Just he will crush that pick. 
And it's funny, Josh Norris, who's like pretty analytical, called Jordan Davis the most athletic prospect ever to come into the NFL, just based on his size profile and what he can do at that profile. So like all sides of my head are just working here. And like, yeah, I don't think I, I don't I agree. I agree with what you said, Griff. I don't think it's the best use of nine. I think you got to get like a high profile position with all. And I think the draft really plays into that. Well, whether that's quarterback, whether that's edge rush corner. So I think shifting, but I really can't help but think that Pete is going to really love this guy as a prospect. And like, he's a very clean, pretty exciting prospect. So if they do take him, I won't be like upset. I actually be pretty into it, but is he in like my top four or five options? No, no, he's not. And again, he's a really fun player. He's an athletic freak, and you can really build this group around him. It's just it's try, I'm trying to figure out. Like, you have Monet, you have Woods, you have Quinn and Jefferson, Shelby Harris, kind of doing their thing in the three four front. How are you going to get the best use of this guy who might not be able to play on third down initially? So it's a really tricky one. Like the, the guy I'm worried about, and this is for another day, is more like the offensive line, Trevor Penning, and seeing Pete get excited about that guy, and that, that's yeah. that's terrifying me. And but. Did you I see, so Parker on Twitter shared the video of Pete when he saw Mickey Becton in person. Did you guys see that? I did. It's, it's amazing. I'll retweeted it for folks that want to go find it. Uh, but basically it's just Pete being, God damn, God damn. He's so big. He's so big. Those sevens go on forever. He's so big. Like Pete's just beside himself because a man yeah. is very large. <laughs> I, yeah. I know. I saw the clip and I'm like, I can't get this Jordan Davis thing out of my head now. Well, good news. It's Trevor Penning instead. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, all right. So another defensive tackle that I want to talk about, because I, I like him quite a bit, but I'm a little conflicted, uh, is um, uh, Devontae Wyatt. Um, you know, you were, Griffin, you were talking about how, you know, the Rams can obviously just do fundamentally different stuff with Aaron Donald. And Wyatt is not Aaron Donald. No one is going to be Aaron Donald. Um, he may go down as the best defensive tackle ever, like 200 years from now. Um, but you know, can he be an Akeem Hicks or, you know, a Geno Atkins level of player? And, you know, I guess one, do you see that upside? And two, is that something that would be particularly valuable on with how they're going to play defense? Um, I think he's like a classic, you know, top 15 to 30 three technique. So like, he's good at everything. He's a good, maybe very good pass rusher. He's going to get you pressure. He's a good run defender. You could even play him at in a one technique in a four, three front. If you want, you know, just for example, like he's that, he's that good against the run. Um, I think though that, I mean, Shelby Harris is productive pass rusher um, and Quentin Jefferson is a good rotational pass rusher. And I just think that they're set on the interior. I don't know if they should prioritize Wyatt. if they're going to take an interior guy, maybe wait to 40, 41, they really want, I think a guy like Logan Hall could be there still. Um, White is good. I like him as a player. I just, I don't know if he's like world breaking enough to supersede your team needs. You know, like, I don't think you change things around too much for him, but he's a good player. And I think he'll probably go in the teens. Um, I don't know if Seattle should be looking at him though, just given, like you said, where they're at and who they already have and all that stuff. But he is a fit though, like schematically, I mean, if you're a good interior defensive lineman, you fit any scheme, really. You know what I mean? Like, so. Jeff, do you like Logan Hall, Devontae Wyatt? Is there another uh, defensive tackle uh, that we haven't talked about here that you're particularly interested in? I don't mind. 
a couple of them, Travis Jones and uh, Perry on Winfrey are guys in the second round range. who I think make a lot of sense just in terms of Travis Jones is more of like a hulking defensive tackle who can stop the run. He, he he's being talked about a lot in Tampa as a possible replacement for Sue. So that kind of role that he's had next to Vita Vea. I think that's a guy that I can see the Seahawks liking as a second round kind of prospect. Perry on Winfrey is more of like the low end Wyatt. He's not nearly as good as him. He's not nearly athletic, but he can do some of the same kind of things. So Wyatt, again, I, I do like him quite a bit as a prospect. I, I think him and Davis are really interesting because they're basically the exact opposite of each other. They come from the same defense. One of them is just as dominant against the run. One of them's a great interior pass rusher. And their limitations are almost opposite of each other. So, again, it comes back to what I was saying before about kind of McDuffie. Seahawks really have some just like needs at premier spots right now. And it's the, all the premium positions almost left tackle, quarterback, number one corner, and probably like the game wrecking edge rusher. And to me, just to, if you move down from nine, you go to 16 or 17, you get another day two pick and you pick Wyatt, it's fine. But to me, there's just an opportunity cost in doing that. And it was similar to McDuffie where it's, he's a good player. There's nothing against him. I just think like taking a, a, an interior pass rusher over those premier spots right now, to me, I'm not really looking for that right now. I think the Seahawks have to rebuild the core of their roster. Who are their building block players? I think he, again, I think like if you're Philadelphia or Baltimore or someone like that, where you're the most of your team is ready, you just need to get over the top. He's a great fit. But for Seattle, defensive tackle, I think makes a lot of sense in round two or three. If there's got Logan Hall is a really popular guy that's rising up boards a little bit. But to me, I just want to see them hit on those premium spots, really rebuild who this team is going forward. Cause We've talked about it. There's been like a weird break between the vision of how Pete wants to play in terms of, and the roster decisions where they've made a lot of decisions to help Russell. They made a lot of decisions to do things defensively. And now you're starting to see more consistent decisions, at least defensively this offseason, where Shelby Harris and Quinton Jefferson, they, they align. They're very similar players at cornerback. We kind of see the rest of the group. They just need to drop in that one guy. Nuosu, he fits as sort of the same kind of body type as Taylor. So it all kind of starting to make sense a little bit more. So for me, it's just more about just getting that premier blue chip guy right now, rather than just good, solid play positions that aren't interior needs. So speaking of non-premium positions, let's close out here with linebackers. Um, I don't know that we need to spend a ton of time on these guys. Um, there are a lot of really interesting linebackers in that 40, 41 range. And I think Seattle could very well dip into one there. Um, someone that's been talked about quite a bit higher than that is Devin Lloyd. And Griffin, I think I saw you say somewhere that Lloyd wasn't really a fit for Seattle, which did surprise me a little bit because they still have use for that off-ball linebacker type, right? So um, what, what, are your, what are your take on Devin Lloyd? Um, I just think he's not very good against the run. And I, and I, and I think that he's, it's actually detrimental and he just doesn't – like he's not a good, great tackler. He tends to – he takes good angles until it's time to break down and make the tackle. And all of a sudden he's like putting himself out of position to make a good tackle. And even when he does get his hands on guys, he's not bringing them down. And then I think that while he is talented in coverage, I think those tools there aren't such that it's enough. Like it's like overwhelmingly slanted in that area where you're like, okay, we don't care how, I mean, he's, he's kind of positionless like Isaiah Simmons, JOK recently. It's just, he's going to be frustrating. And as far as where to put him, like Cardinals still don't know what to do with Simmons, really. It's like Vance Joseph is a very creative coordinator who does interesting things 
and he doesn't know what to do with them. So I don't think they should go in that area. Um, I think, yeah, like you said, they could take a linebacker here. Um, Cody Barton, I don't think you can put, have any certainty there. Um, but I have hope for him. I like his skills. I think he needs reps. That's what's always been the case with him. I think KJ Wright aging really well, like kind of threw off his career trajectory. He was a good coverage player at Utah. And I think he's, I think he's had more good games in the NFL in the few games that he's played in than he hasn't, than, the, than he's had bad games. Certainly he's had a couple of bad games, but I think he's had some good games too. Um, if hypothetically the last, if the way he played against the Lions and Cardinals, if you could ensure that for all 17 games, 2022, you don't need to touch a linebacker and you extend him. Now it's folly to think that you can just go into 2022 with that certainty. So he's got one year left on his contract. So you should probably should take a linebacker day two or day three. Um, the guys I do like though, um, I think Brandon, uh, Christian Harris is the most complete linebacker, and I think he's the squarest fit. I think N'Kobe Dean's the second best, but I don't think he just is too small for how they want to play. But he he is good in coverage. The way Georgia uses him didn't get to flaunt that as much, um, but I think it translates. I just think Christian Harris was asked to do more. Um, but a guy that I really like that I think could even be there at 72 um, is Chad Muma. And I, I think he's the most skilled coverage linebacker in terms of like what's under his control. He did run a four, six. He has a good 10 yard split, not great, but he has a good three cone and a good shuttle. And like, if you think like in a, you know, 30 by 30 yard box, he has all the athleticism you need. Then the rest is like skills and, and smarts and all that stuff. This is kind of becoming the stock answer for, Oh, this guy is really good in coverage and like a good spot dropper. Um, he reminds me of KJ Wright. Just your eyes are in the right place, feet are in the right place. You're canceling routes and stuff, taking away reads, and it just looks like he's just standing around out there. But it's like what some of KJ Wright's best stuff is him seemingly just standing around out in space, but he's destroying the offensive concept. And unless you're like really, really like seeing like where the quarterback's eyes are going, the routes are, it's hard to see that, especially on broadcast. So Chad Muma, he is that guy. He can carry receivers. Now you're not going to have him carry Tyreek Hill, you know, if it's cover three and, and Tyreek Hill is the number three receiver. But if you even put um, Travis Kelsey in the slot and he's that deep over route, I think Muma has the traits to handle that route, at least the speed to. Um, if you put, you know, a lesser receiver, he could handle that. But he's not going to handle Devontae Smith. He's not going to handle Tyreek Hill, et cetera. Um, he's also really good against the run, a really good tackler. He takes on blocks really well. He's just as the total package. He's just not elite. He's not a first rounder, but there are good linebackers taken in the second round that get big deals and, you know, down the line anyway. So he could be one of those guys. Um, I really like him. So he's another guy that seems like he could really benefit for some NFL coaching on, uh, <clears throat> um, yeah. Jeff, um, what about you? Do you have a favorite linebacker? Uh, Griff stole my answer. Muma. I, I, I thought, no, it's, that's, that's what you're here for. Um, I'm always on the show. So <laughs> Muma is a good, I think, so number one, Devin Lloyd, do not draft him in the first round. Nothing against him. Just it's so low on their list of needs. Cody Barton was fine to solid at the end of last year. And 
I think there really is a sweet spot where they're picking, where linebacker makes a lot of sense at either of their second round picks. And I think you can wait till round three. I, one of the guys I like is Channing Tindall from Georgia. He was, I know Nicobe Dean and Quay Walker get more of the attention. Tindall wasn't a full-time player last year, but just athletically he projects really well. And I think he would pair really well with Jordan Brooks. And a lot of people just see him as sort of that traits guy, but I know a lot of the people I speak to really think he'll be a better pro than he was in college just because of how he didn't get to play a lot just because of how good the linebackers were at Georgia. And I think with more playing time, he might be really good. But I, I really like the Muma-KJ Wright comparison. Uh, he replaced Logan Wilson at Wyoming and really smart, just high IQ player who who's pretty athletic. And I just think because of his position, he's not going to go that high. And I think that I think that pairs really well with what they do defensively and I, I think any of those guys and there's just a lot of them where that second third round there's a number of linebackers that would fit what they do and they can really round out this defense because we I know Griff you're Mr. you're the king of talking about this but it's the uncomfortable thing is like Bobby Wagner wasn't good last year and it really left them shortchanged defensively so to add like a young athletic linebacker that's ascending with Brooks I think that can really round out the group yeah, it's, uh, I, um, it's kind of tragic. Bobby was my favorite player from that era, but watching him in 2021 was really tough. And if he was even 90% of what he, 80% of what he was in 2020, Seattle would have had a lot better fortunes, I think. A lot of their issue was right where he needs to be in coverage, and it was just tough to watch. And Cody Barton is nowhere near where peak Bobby was, but I think how well Cody played I thought and what that did for them especially in that Cardinals game kind of shows just how far Bobby fell athletically and it's like not his fault his knees are done unless you know he bounces back and because he was on the injury report maybe it was more acute not chronic I don't know I assumed it was maybe a combination but he has had knee problems for about four years and Bobby was declining athletically it just wasn't enough to make it that he still wasn't an elite player I think the dam broke this past year um but if, if Cody had the traits to make up the difference, then I think some of these guys, if they move on from Cody, regardless of how he plays this year, there's some exciting guys. I really like Tyndall too. I think Tyndall could be that perfect pick at their like 100 pick, whatever they are, 106 or something. 105? Yeah. Tyndall might be the money pick right there because he has the traits, like you said. Get him in this scheme, coached up. He actually showed some stuff in the senior bowl, just in terms of like, I know it's senior bowl. You shouldn't take it too seriously in terms of the scrimmage play. But they asked him to do things he literally was not asked to do at Georgia. And he was handling it pretty well. I'm like, we're talking under center play action. Okay, it's not the run. It's the pass. You better roll over and go find that crossing route. Looked really smooth and quick doing it. So maybe Seattle's like, okay, we can coach this guy. We have the guys to coach them up. Um you know, and take him at, at, one, at 105, whatever it is. So uh, I wouldn't be opposed to that either. That could be the fallback plan if, you know, say, like if Christian Harris is there at 40, I think he's a future pro bowler. I think you should just take him anyway. But if he's – and he probably won't be there. But if he's not there, then consider Muma maybe at 70 if he's there, maybe even 41 if you get really lucky with how 9 and 40 goes and you're starting to feel yourself a little bit. But if all else fails, look at Tyndall at – at 100 something so all right i got uh, one final question for us but somebody uh threw troy anderson uh into the chat and i'm curious if we have any troy anderson takes jeff griffin 
So I've only watched him broadcast. I wasn't able to find tape on him. Um, I, I don't think he has tape that you can evaluate him in coverage, as in, like, you can't rule out that he can't do things, but when you don't see him in those situations, you can't say he can. Um, he's really good in the straight line. I remember it wanting a little bit more change of direction relative to what his combine showed. But uh, I think he's like a project linebacker, but that's a day three guy that you can take and, you know, insert with maybe with coaching, something could happen there. Um, I think he's a fourth or fifth rounder though, personally. Um, but I mean, the athleticism is there, the effort is there, but I haven't watched enough to like, know like what his potential is in coverage. Yeah, I've seen some people on Twitter, you know, talking about him as, oh, I've got him as like a second rounder and, and, and maybe, you know, pure talent in different situation, that's where he'd be. But considering the position change, considering the small school, like it's, it's just not realistic that I think he goes above the fourth. Um, I got carried away, I think, in my last mock and, and had him taking Cole Strange with 41, which... I think you can justify again on talent, but you know, if you look at where these small school guys go, they really do take a hit typically. So um, Trey Anderson could be a really interesting guy for Seattle, but I think it will be later on in the draft if they go there. All right. Last question, Griff. Th- thanks so much for the time explaining the Seattle defense twice, uh, pushing back a day, all that. Uh, thanks everyone uh, who are watching for, uh, you know, being patient with us today and uh, accommodating the schedule change and everything. But, if you had to bet your mortgage, your next paycheck, your car, your two dogs on who one of these guys that we've talked about that Seattle will draft, who is the who is the slam dunk lock of the century, Griffin, that Seattle is going to draft of all these defensive names that we've talked about? Who I think they will draft? Absolutely. Yeah. The guy that you're most certain they'll take. Oh, shoot. Um... Here, we'll put Jeff on the spot because yeah, I don't yeah, like yeah. him very much. Jeff, you go first. <laughs> God, I, I said this before. I, I can never pick this right. I can read other teams. I have no idea what they're thinking. Um, I'll go Jermaine Johnson. I'll say Jermaine Johnson at nine, which will get completely mixed reactions from. I've seen like Doug Farr. I saw him as the number one edge, and some people think he's a bust. So, again, I don't have a read on what these guys are doing. Their whole offseason, I just haven't been able to figure them out. So this draft is especially fascinating to me. I'll go with that. That's fair. It so much depends on who's there at nine. Yeah. See, I doesn't uh, have to be nine. This can be you know yeah, a guy yeah, anyway. that you think they'll take in second, third, wherever. Okay, if this was two years ago, I would have told you Josh Pascoe in the third round. If we didn't even talk about him, but um, and I also would have said Logan Hall before the Wilson trades. They got Shelby Harris. Shoot, man. You know I'm gonna go. Um, I think. I think they find a way and come away with Arnold Evichetti somehow. I think that they're going to not have the guy that they want at nine. They're going to trade back to the teens, take Evichetti, and then roll from there. I don't know if that's not, that's not my ideal scenario. You know what I mean? But could be how it shakes out. Yeah. I, I think um, I'm going to hedge a little bit here and go with somebody that could be as late as the third, like you were talking about with Muma. Um, I think there's a lot of, they'll have more opportunities to take in than some of these other guys, at least. So uh, if I had to bet my life on it, uh, I would probably, I guess I'll go with him. Um, Great. Well, so everyone listening, please give us a like, uh, subscribe. Um, Griffin, tell us again about where people can go and find you. 
Um, well, you can, uh, my podcast is Seattle Overload. You can just Google it. It'll show up. Um, I'm on Twitter at C Mike Spin Move. That's C-M-I-K-E-S-S-P-I-N-M-O-V-E. That, that you'd want to follow me or take me seriously currently. You should my absolutely aunt, follow Griffin and take him seriously on Twitter. Sure. Only good stuff. Currently, my handle is Drew Brees is unretiring. And then my <laughs> profile picture is, is endorsing drafting Desmond Ritter at night. So I'm not a reliable narrator here. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, we have fun on there. Like to talk about stuff, like to engage. So if you want to follow me, that's fine. No pressure. Um, yeah. So guys, thanks for having me. I really had a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. It's really appreciate it. On. And uh, also for folks that are interested, we do have the Patreon. You can give us money. We turn around and give basically all of it to charity. Um, so it's all for a good cause. Um, so if you're interested in that, we have the, the Slack and, and we can talk about football in there all the time. So uh, awesome. Uh, I don't know how to end this. I didn't know how to start it. I don't know how to end it. There so, we go. Uh, well, let's ride. Is that how we do this? <laughs> I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad we were able to put this together because Nathan, I think you were probably like me. We were all probably jacked up to talk about the draft last week, and Brian ended up talking about Baker Mayfield for 35 minutes. Yeah. All he and wanted we, to talk about was magnesium and melatonin. Yeah, so. and I was like, what, what the fuck's going on? So, okay, I'm happy we were able to actually talk about these guys. All right, wait, think, wait. yeah, yeah. I was gonna say quick over under. Does Russell Wilson slip at the end of a press conference and accidentally say "Go Hawks" one time this year? He's a robot, so yeah. I'm going to go zero. He doesn't do it. <laughs> yeah, I think he's going to wake up in the mirror and practice. I was yeah. going to say the same thing. He wakes up in the mirror and said, let's ride like 50 times before he does anything else. I, I wouldn't be surprised. Separations in the preparation. Well, and so one of the weird things, was, all right, we're now we're just rambling and we should probably end the pod, but do you guys remember the stories about how like uh, Russ's dad would wake him up when he was like nine or 10 years old and they would practice like press conferences. Yes. Russ is not slipping up on let's yeah. That's Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have to be, to be the level of athlete, all time athlete that he is, you have to be a weirdo in some respects. And he definitely, oh. all, every, every guy has some weird thing. Like Michael Jordan did weird stuff. Yeah. That's, that's, that's probably, you're probably right. Russ probably won't mess up. <laughs> All right. Well, last thing I'll say, we're going to try to do another one of these, talk about all the offensive guys we haven't talked about. Um, Griff will, of course, be welcome, but I don't know if he wants to spend that much time with us, so we will see. Uh, but again, thanks, everybody, for the patience with today, and uh, go Hawks. Peace out.